In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Margaret Arlene Murphy, Peggy, was born August 4, 1947, on the cusp of the post-war baby boom. That made her, at age 10, a local witness to the world-changing events at Central High School. And at 21, a first-time voter the year that Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were killed. She grew up to be a bookish, poet-loving soul who practiced what she preached as a librarian. Peggy worked her way up through the library administrative ranks through field promotions just because she was good at what she did and wanted it done right. My father, the bishop, used to tell young priests that while administration isn't one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's the delivery system for all the gifts. As a library administrator, Peggy delivered the gifts of science, history, and poetry to Little Rock. For 53 years, she lived the trials and satisfactions of normal, healthy life. She was a practical cat to borrow the phrase from T.S. Eliot, and a cat lover, too. She was a fiction reader with a strong appetite for mysteries, an Agatha Christie fan, and Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. The local club for mystery buffs styles itself the Orient Express, and Peggy was a regular writer. She was a good wife and a loving mom and a fun-loving and reliable friend. She'd seen bright lights in big cities, Broadway, Fisherman's Wharf, and Piccadilly Circus. She also appreciated the down-home Victorian Ozark charms of Eureka Springs. She enjoyed a good laugh and the solid satisfactions of a job well done. It was a wonderful life. On December 23, 2000, at the age of 53, she was badly wounded by a stroke. And for Peggy, Lewis, Merritt, and Jennifer, life would never be the same. Seventeen years is a long time to endure and manage a severe physical impairment, logistically, emotionally, and spiritually. In the Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas, there's a section titled, Human Life is a Journey to God. According to Aquinas, human beings are in most respects just the same as other creatures. Like plants and animals, we are attracted to some things and repulsed by others. Ducks are drawn, Aquinas would say, to the goodness and the flooded cypress bottoms in the winter. Cats are drawn to the goodness in a bowl of milk. Our instincts are similar. What sets us apart, Aquinas said, is our power to think. And that gives us an ability to abstract from the goodness in things, milk, flooded forests, bright lights in big cities, Victorian houses in the Ozarks, a good mystery in a soft chair by a cozy fire. 
to the very idea of goodness as something in its own right. As he puts it, humans by nature can grasp the meaning of goodness and so be attracted to goodness as such. That is our special quality as creatures under heaven. Aquinas says that whatever is of value and can satisfy desire is good. Delight, he says, is satisfied desire. That's when life is wonderful. Aquinas knew that life is only episodically delightful. We can be partially happy in this life, he said, but not completely and not truly. That for there are many ills that cannot be avoided in this life. Ignorance of mind, unbalanced attachments, all sort of bodily pains. And we also desire the good things we have to last, whereas in this life they pass away. Indeed, life itself passes away, though by nature we desire it and wish it to last and shrink from death. Like Dorothy, St. Thomas Aquinas believed the perfect life lies over the rainbow. And I believe that too. Peggy's body took a turn that led her far away from wonderful. This is hard to watch. So the world turns its back to a large extent. Long-suffering people are often kept out of public sight and mostly out of mind, except for those most intimately involved in their care and feeding. We see such people in the Bible, where their neighbors almost always blame them for their troubles. Something like a doctrine of karma seems to come naturally to humans, the assumption that people must have done something to deserve their pain. In the Old Testament, the book of Job arises as a protest against that doctrine. God sides with Job against the charge that Job deserved his suffering. And then in the New Testament, Jesus proves that point in every town he visits. The long-suffering come out to him in force. They have heard that he's coming and they line the streets, rattling their beggar's cups, covered up in bandages, or lying paralyzed on stretchers. For example, in Mark. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Miracles are common in the Gospels, but elsewhere they are rare. It takes a little faith, I admit, to draw a lesson from a healing story and apply it to a person who wasn't healed. In the stacks behind Peggy's circulation desk, library patrons would find books by David Hume, the philosopher who insisted that miracles are too rare and strange to be reasonably believed. And books by Goethe, the poet, who said, Faith's dearest child is miracle. 
in books by John Henry Newman, the philosopher-priest who used Goethe's point to answer Hume's. Newman accepted Hume's claim that miracle stories from the past can't convince an unbeliever. But God, Newman knew, has other ways to awaken faith. And once awake, it gladly sees that Jesus did do miracles. And I believe that too. Reading the New Testament, Karl Barth, the theologian, noticed that the miracles of Jesus are directed, he said, to a world and people for which things are going badly. At points, he said, in the Gospels, we have the impression that life as a whole is really like a great hospital whose many departments in some way unfold us all. Those people who lined the streets waiting for Jesus lived, he said, in the shadow of death. For 17 years, Peggy lived in that shadow. So the Gospels tell us where God stands on the question of disease and suffering, and they summon us to stand there too, to do our part to the extent of our ability to relieve that suffering where we can. God's servant, Louis Machen, has done that faithfully for all these years. Here's a line <coughs> from another book I like a lot, Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. A wise old man whose years are mostly spent, spent says of heaven, I believe the soul in paradise must enjoy something nearer to a perpetual vigorous adulthood than to any other state we know. His friend in the book says a good way to think about heaven is by simple multiplication. Mainly, I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by 10 or 12 if I had the energy. But two is more than sufficient for my purpose. So to think of heaven, multiply the feel of the wind by two. Multiply the smell of grass by two. We have reason to believe that the world to come is both similar to earthly life and profoundly different. Missing, gone, are the ills Aquinas mentioned that in this life cannot be avoided. Pain, ignorance, unbalanced attachments, happy times and loved ones slipping through our fingers. Over the rainbow, I mean in heaven, the gospel invites us to imagine a very different kind of world, but somehow still familiar. And there, we are still ourselves, but changed. Isaiah promises a feast of rich foods full of marrow and well-aged wines. The point is that goodness as we find it here and now draws us to a higher, deeper goodness there and then. And there we will find Margaret, Arlene, Murphy, Machen, Peggy, waiting, smiling, standing, happy. <laughs>